So we've been discussing rebirth. How it happens, what goes from one life to the next. So let's uh, do some imagining of either our previous life or our next life. But imagine being the opposite sex than you are now. Imagine being of a very different socioeconomic class than the family you were raised in in this life. And imagine being born in a different country, speaking a different language so that you didn't think in English anymore. So just take a few minutes, imagine being this other person. It could be your previous life, it could be your next life. Opposite sex, different socioeconomic class, and in a different country, speaking a different language. See what your feeling of I is. Thinking, think about what your life is like, what your interests are, the kind of personality or values that you have. As, in, as being this other person, who is a continuation of yourself? Then imagine being an animal or an insect. So pick whatever animal or insect. That could be a past or a future life. And imagine being that being with the aggregates, the body and mind of that kind of animal or insect. What would you do? What would you think? So what was your sense of I in both those different lifetimes? 
What was the sense of I that you had? And how was it the same or different from the sense of I that you have now? So there, is there any sense that the present I has much of a connection with either that human being or that animal of your previous or future life? Do you feel like you're at all related? We say that those three specific eyes are all part of the basis of designation upon which the general eye is designated, or independence on which the general eye is designated. So what in the world is that general eye? And how does it relate to your sense of I now? Who are you? <laughs> and what is it that's getting reborn? Does it feel quite spacey, or is there part of your mind going, but there's this sense of me right now? <laughs> <laughs> 
that one is always there no matter what life it is. There's always a me, but what is that me? Yeah, what is that me? That is this life, that is this person, the opposite gender, opposite socioeconomic class in another country, and an animal or an insect. Is there one person that's all of those? What is this general I, then, that's caring? The karma. And who's the I, the specific I, of each life? So, think about it. Also see if you, uh, if it was difficult to imagine being another person. Yeah. Or to be an animal, thinking, you know, with an animal's kind of mind. So, are we on the question on 177, the second question? Or the, yeah, yeah, we did the first one talking about my first experience in Singapore. Huh? Yeah. Okay. So does that mean that all acts of dedicating useful items such as food, vehicles, clothes, and ornaments to the deceased are meaningless? Yeah. Who's getting them? And what's, what's valuable, your thought of giving to your deceased ones or the fact of them getting it? Are both, or not, you know, they're not going to get it. Does that make it useless? Does your having a good thought based on a wrong idea make it virtuous? Lots of times, you know, we when we talk about the root afflictions, sometimes we think all of them are non-virtuous. They aren't. Yeah, ignorance is not non-virtuous, and a view of a personal identity also is not non-virtuous, because those can arise and support a virtuous intention. Okay. So, for example, if you're thinking, my relatives died and I want them to be safe, there's some grasping itself, right? Yeah. But there's also an attitude of compassion. But your attitude of compassion 
when you're offering, you know, lollipops and Mars bars and bihun to to your dead relatives or effigies of your dead relatives. You know, that's basically superstition, isn't it? So is it virtuous? Is it non-virtuous? Yeah. The ignorance and the view of self are neutral, but you know, what comes out of that? Something to think about. Hmm? So in the sutra, the end, the Buddha replied, the best way to benefit deceased loved ones is to do virtuous activities and dedicate the merit for their good rebirth and progress on the path to awakening. So rather than offer them food and drink and, you know, like the pharaohs of old put everything they could possibly need in their tomb, yeah, when we do this, uh, have you done that with, with dear ones who have died, put things in the casket with them that have sentimental value or dress them in a certain way that has sentimental value? Yeah. So who's, are they benefiting from that or is it for us? It, it helps us, doesn't it? Yeah. So they say when we do pujas and so on and dedicate for the, the deceased ones that it helps them. Yeah. I often think it helps the living person even more than it helps the dead person. Because it's not like when you're dead that you have nothing to do and nothing appearing to your mind so that you can, uh, you know, see who's offering, uh, you know, fried cakes to you and, and all of this stuff. Yeah? I mean, every culture has so many rituals about giving things to the dead. And, uh, yeah, most of those, I think, you know, are for the living to, to create a sense of peace with the people who have died. I once suggested that to some Buddhists. They got so mad at me. <laughs> they got really mad. You know, I, it was just one, one woman when I suggested that the femme, you know, that this was doing, oh. She was very upset with me. Um, When we dedicate things for them, you know, I I don't imagine them kind of hanging out in air, looking down and saying, oh, that's nice, they just did a puja and dedicated for me. I mean, when you're in the bardo, you're having all these karmic appearances you know, and you're you're being pushed here and there by the craving for the these different things that you see in the in the karmic appearances. So I don't know that they're necessarily conscious of, you know, even the Buddhist practices and dedications that we do for them. I think something might work on a on a subconscious level, you know, when we dedicate for different people, you know. It works on definitely, I think, on a, on a subconscious level. But it's not like people are looking down and 
saying, oh, good, you know. They, they took my treasured gold watch and to the pawn shop and got some money and offered puja, but I'm not a Buddhist, so what, why did they take my, my gold watch and do that? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going on. Yeah. I wanted to clarify some confusion I have because I read um, the Shitigava Sutra mm-hmm. and it talks about when you do this kind of offerings to the Buddhists and all, and then dedicate the merits for the dead people, um, they get one seventh and the rest is the living people. And then oh, they get one seventh? Yes. Did you say of the merit, the living people get? Six seven. Yes, they get. That, if I remember the math, my my numbers okay. numbers are not my strong point. Okay, but it's that kind of. Um, it's they get yeah. a portion of it. The majority uh-huh. goes to the living people. Yeah. Uh, and then the way the the sutra, I get confused with because it's so much. Um, there is so much Chinese culture in it that yeah. I read the the sutra and it's it's like. This is Chinese culture. I don't know which part is Buddhism, which part is culture. And yeah. It's very confusing. Uh, but it does talk about like Shitigarbha when he was a Bodhisattva and born as a woman. I mean, and then the mother died and, you know, he wanted to, I mean, she wanted to help the mother. And that's, you know, the, so he, she dedicated to the Buddhas and the mother was released from hell. So, mm. so then I see a lot of practices. I mean, reading it, I have an understanding of why there was so much of these things were done in the Chinese culture because it, it, I read it and I believe it because I come from that culture, but yeah. I cannot tell which part is Buddhism and which part is culture. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read the Kashiti Sutra, the, the Chinese version or the English version of it. So I, I don't think I could be a, a big help in, in all the details. But I think the idea of creating merit and dedicating it for deceased ones is something that's good. And if you have, um, if you send them on with a feeling of love and very virtuous aspirations, I think that we can kind of communicate sometimes uh, you know, just the f- feeling, not like, okay, I'm sending you a message, are you getting it? But just, uh, you know, it, it could be another factor in maybe changing the feeling of the person such that uh, a, a different karma could ripen if the other causes and conditions were present to make that happen. But how much is Chinese culture, I I. I haven't read it. I, I can't really help you with that. Yeah. But the idea, I think, is is a virtuous one, yeah, of creating merit and dedicating it. But I, I agree that most, I think most of the merit goes to the living person because they're the person with the strong intention. And motivation is usually the thing that that creates the strongest karma when we do an act. Does that help any? 
it helped me, I mean, reading the sutra helped me understand why all these practices, because it, reading the sutra, I want to do these things. Because they uh -huh. actually talk about, like, you, when you do this, your, your ancestors and all that, how, you know, they get liberated. Like they literally uh, talk about them yeah. getting out of hell. And uh -huh. not just that, the people, like, kind of, they hang out with in hell, everybody gets liberated. Mm. Okay, so. now how much that is true, I have some doubt. <laughs> okay, um, you know, again, because so much depends. Uh, the sutras sometimes make things like you do this and then this is the result in all circumstances. And there's nothing where one cause brings the same result in all circumstances. Because there's so many other causes and conditions uh, necessary that, for, you know, that are there that shape the situation. Okay? So in the case of, you know, when we dedicate merit or pray for the well-being of, of loved ones who are deceased, we also have to think what karma did they create when they were alive? Yeah, if they created some good karma and they have some faith, then there's, you know, those are different conditions. Then there's then a, a deceased relative that we may have loved very much, but who was always cheating in their business and lying to their family and, you know, sleeping around and having no faith. So I don't think we can say, you know, that just doing one act is going to have liberate all these beings. Also, because liberation isn't just a thing of, uh, you know, somebody dedicates for you and then all your ignorance is gone. Yeah, because if that were true, I'm sure in our previous lives we've had lots of people dedicating for us. Yeah, and right now all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are dedicating for us, and our teachers are dedicating for us, and we're still grasping an air in existence, aren't we? Yeah, so we have to do the work of wearing down and combating and overcoming our own ignorance and our own afflictions. Somebody else dedicating for us cannot do that fundamental work. It could maybe give us good conditions whereby we can do it. But uh, we have to do that work. It, it's the old thing of you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Yeah? So when we're praying for, for people and dedicating for them, it's like leading them to water. But, you know, how many horses are thirsty and they stand by the water and don't drink. Yeah? Or it's like, you know, can, can we hire somebody to sleep for us? Yeah, when we're short on sleep and we really need a few good days of, you know, a lot of sleep to get well rested, can, can we hire somebody else to do that for us? You know? Create merit and dedicate. I dedicate all this. I'm doing Lama Chopa Soap with millions of offerings, and I dedicate this so that you can sleep for me so that I feel well rested. You know? 
It's like we have a good intention and dedicating for that person is good, but, you know, their sleeping for us is is not going to make us well-rested. I really wish it would. Yeah? Because sometimes, I mean, who wants to spend so much time sleeping when you could be doing better things? <laughs> or, you know, pay somebody else to eat when you're hungry. Yeah, I'm so tired of being hungry. You know, here, I'll give you some food. Eat, and then my hunger will stop. <laughs> but it's, it's like getting rid of the ignorance, you know? Everybody has to do that themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, next question. Sentient beings who commit non-virtuous actions, such as killing their parents, are certain to experience horrible consequences of their actions. Is there a way for them to attain a happy rebirth? Okay, so killing your parents, uh, killing your father, killing your mother, those are two of the five heinous uh, actions that uh, bring immediate rebirth in the hell realm. You don't even go through the bardo. It's like, do not pass go, do not collect $200, you know, because it's such heavy negative karma to do that. So Buddha replied, if they genuinely believe in the law of karma and its effects and sincerely purify their wrongdoings, those non-virtuous actions will be purified. I don't know that they will be totally purified because only meditating on emptiness does that, but they will, the karma will certainly be impeded from ripening, giving us more time to, you know, uh, realize emptiness. At the time of death, if they regret their past unwholesome actions and generate genuine admiration and take refuge in the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, the unwholesome actions will be purified and they could take rebirth in the higher realms. Okay, so here's the value of the four opponent powers. So it isn't just doing this at the time of death. It says at the time of death if they do this. Okay, but it isn't like okay, I created some negative karma, and I regret it, but I'm really busy creating more negative karma. And I don't want to do 100,000 prostrations because I'm really busy. And this uh, sutra says, if I wait until the time of death, then, you know, I'll, I'll remember to regret it then, and then it'll all be okay. I'll have a good rebirth. That way of thinking is, is ridiculous, Okay, first of all, because we're very much creatures of habit. And how we die is very much how we live, corresponds with how we live. So to be running around creating non-virtue and delighting in our non-virtuous actions, and then thinking that being so familiarized with that mental state that at the time of death, all of a sudden we're going to have a virtuous thought and regret all of that. What's the likelihood of that happening? Yeah? 
What's the likelihood of that happening? If somebody's familiar with a certain thought pattern their whole life, they've loved it, they've taken delight in it at death, when there's so much uh, upheaval physically and mentally, and fear probably arising, is somebody going to remember to regret their negativities at that time? You know, highly unlikely, isn't it? Yeah. Do we remember to regret our negativities at the end of the day? Or even, you know? So, okay. But this is, you know, if we want to be a good friend, to a good Dharma friend to somebody, then uh, while they're alive and it, when they're dying, to encourage them to have a positive attitude and to regret any non-virtue. That is, is very helpful to them. Okay? So, to, you know. But I wouldn't wait until somebody's, you know, last five minutes to do that. Because if you, you know, somebody's like in their last, you know, few hours and you tell them regret all your non-virtue and they start remembering their non-virtue and they start getting really unhappy and instead of regret they feel guilty, you know, or they feel angry, then that's not going to benefit them. Uh, so I think the best way really is is to help people when they're alive to, to you know, to, uh, to do purification practice. Uh, you know, like the 100,000 different things that, that we do, you know, 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 vajrasattva, and so on. Um, and then at, even after that, to continue doing purification every day. Uh, I think that's how to be a, a really good friend to somebody. Mm -hmm. So the Buddha continues here. Do not think that there are no future lives. Do not cling to worldly pleasures or anything in cyclic existence. When we transmigrate from one life to the next, there is nothing permanent that goes on to the next life. When you did that meditation at the beginning of the session, did it feel like there was something permanent that went on? to your next life? There was something permanent when you were that other person or when you were that animal? Yeah? We can have that feeling of permanence. You know, we can have the thought that there's an inherently existent me, whether we not or not we use that language. But just because we think something doesn't mean it's, it exists. It's true. Mm -hmm. um, doing this meditation, I um, thought there are certain traits that may appear as permanent, such as a certain habit, as a certain behavior. Um, maybe that you think of um, being a generous person or something like that, and then. Mm -hmm. 
I can imagine that that may appear and then you have the thing thought, this is me. Mm. So, but in fact, this is a continuum of many, many actions um, that you did. And it's not a permanent, stable thing. Exactly. Because the same person who's generous at other times is also stingy. <laughs> yeah. And if being generous were a permanent quality, then you couldn't have many different instances of generosity because something permanent doesn't change. So there would just be one action, particular action of generosity that would have to keep occurring. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the way it is. Yeah. I keep giving the same person my sandwich at lunchtime. <laughs> but we still have that feeling. Yeah, that's what I meant. Like, we have this thing that, you know, if I think something, that makes it real. Yeah, but it doesn't make it real. As we witness so often in our daily life, when we think somebody did something for this and such a motivation, and we haven't asked them or checked with them, we've merely <laughs> imputed a motivation on them, and then when we talk to them, we find out that they were thinking something totally different. Yeah. So don't believe everything you think. Yeah, Especially if you're grasping onto an in inherent existence and permanence. Okay, so when we transgrade from one life to the next, there is nothing permanent that goes on to the next life. Nor does everything discontinue, becoming non-existent. So here's the two extremes. Remember when we did Precious Garland and he talked a lot about the two extremes? Yeah, the extreme of absolutism or permanence or eternalism, or existence. So that's it. There's something permanent, truly existent, that continues. The other extreme of non-existence, yeah, nihilism, that, you know, at the time of death, or even from moment to moment, nothing continues on, you know. And especially at death, there's just nothing. Yeah, that's what I thought for a long time after I gave up my religion of origin. I just said, you know, when you die, there's just nothing, nothingness. Yeah, a lot of people believe that nowadays. Okay, so it's not, you can see why that's two extreme views. One thinks that there's something fixed, solid and inherently existent that goes from one life to the next and the other says there's something fixed and solid and inherently existent but when you die poof, everything goes out of existence there's total non-existence no continuity okay so those are the two extremes that people go to and you can see that there's a relationship between those two extremes. 
because both the people who cling to an absolutist view, who cling to true existence, and the people who who have a nihilistic view that everything discontinues, both of them have the idea that if something exists, it must truly exist. And if something doesn't exist, and if something is not truly existent, then it doesn't exist at all. So if something exists, it must be truly existent. And if things are not truly existent, then they don't exist at all. So both the absolutist and the nihilist have those two uh, tenets. Yeah, the absolutist hangs on to the first part of if it's if it exists, it must inherently exist, and the nihilist hangs on to the second part of if it doesn't. Uh, inherently exist, it's non-existent. But they're both based on the same things. And that's why somebody can go very easily from being, uh, uh, from holding the absolutist views to all of a sudden, you know, oh, you mean that if there's no soul? Well, then nothing exists. Yeah? So somebody can go from absolutism, boing, all the way to nihilism without anything in the middle. And similarly, someone can go from having a really, really nihilistic view and then being told that you have a soul and there's a creator and you just need to follow that. And then they go like, boom, from nihilism back to absolutism. Yeah. Because the fundamental premises of both of these views are the same. If it exists, it, it, it's inherently existent. If it's not inherently existent, it doesn't exist at all. Yeah. There's no idea of uh, continuity and dependence and things arising dependent on other phenomena. It's a very black and white viewpoint. And uh, we have many black and white ways of looking at things, don't we? Yeah. You either put the spatula here or you put it there. There's no other place to put it. Okay. So our future rebirth, yeah, so nor does everything discontinue becoming non-existent. Our future rebirth is not the work of an external creator. It is not a whim of the self. And it does not occur without any cause. Okay. You remember uh, last week when we did the meditation we started out thinking about those three um, premises from uh, from Asanga about causality. Yeah, what were they? Yeah, every effect arose from a cause. 
It can't, yeah, it can't, be, it can't be a permanent cause and it can't be a discordant cause. Okay, so here we have our future rebirth is not the work of an external creator. Which of those three is an external creator? The permanent cause. Okay, it does not occur without any cause. What's that one? I'm just, yeah. That's, that's the first one of every result must have a cause. And it is not the whim of a self. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's a discordant cause in the sense that we can't, uh, you know, our future rebirth, it's not like we have a whim and, you know, oh, I think I'll be born as that raven who always flies in the sky, you know? It's not going to happen like that. Or I don't feel like being reborn so soon, you know? I want to go on a, the Grand Princess cruise for a while. <laughs> then I'll get reborn. Hmm? Mm. <laughs> okay, so then the next uh, question. How rebirth occurs without a permanent self or soul and without the work of an external creator is difficult to understand. And it is, which is why most people in the world either fall to the extreme of absolutism or fall to the extreme of nihilism. Because those two things are difficult to understand when you have a mind that grasps at inherent existence. Yeah. It is also hard to comprehend that everything does not cease at death. Yeah. Because for some people to think, oh, everything, you know, it's hard to comprehend that everything doesn't cease at death. Well, I think it does. It is just blackness. There's no God, you know. So when you die, you're dead. Yeah. So you can see, you know, rebirth without a permanent soul is hard, hard to understand. It's also hard to comprehend that everything doesn't just cease at death. Or, and that rebirth isn't just random and causeless. Yeah, it's for no, no purpose, no reason, no cause. There's nothing you can do about it at all. Yeah. So it's hard to think that, thing, that it's not just random or that you're not just... Uh, you know, parts of other people's mind that all came together. Because yeah. people think, oh, but you know, you know, my body is a composition of so many people's uh, genes. You know, when you think back, all your ancestors and all their genes, and you know, we have this unique mixture of like gazillions of peoples and monkeys and, you know, Whatever else came before. Are we from monkeys or gorillas or orangutans or 
who's our, you know, whatever it was, okay? I mean, there's millions of these beings whose genes are making up the, these, you know, this thing. So we could easily think, okay, well, my, my body is a composition of many people's bodies. So my mind must be a composition of many people's minds. Yeah. So it's not like that either. Yeah. The mind isn't something that can be cut up and uh, divvied up, you know, to different people. And it's hard, yeah, so hard to think that rebirth isn't simply random and causeless. Please give some examples to help us understand. Okay, so the Buddha replied, having some basic, basic information about rebirth, the rebirth process first, will help you understand the examples. So he's going to go into some uh, examples but first, here are the, the ideas, the principles behind the rebirth process. Okay, so everything about this life does not discontinue and cease altogether in order for rebirth to exist. Okay, so it's not like everything discontinues, you know. Your body uh, doesn't just turn to get recycled in nature, it just discontinues. And your mind stream also, you know, nothing, no thought, darkness, non-existence. Okay, so it's not that everything about this life does not discontinue and cease altogether for rebirth to exist. Some things, the con you know, the continuity ceases or it really changes radically to become, so that it isn't recognizable in a new form, okay? But not everything, yeah, there is a continuity. So surely, you know, what ceases at death? Our social status, our education, our reputation with our friends, you know that reputation and image that we spend so much time worrying about and trying to create and making sure it's good? That does not go on with us after death. It dies. Yeah, it, it's discontinued. Yeah, even they write beautiful obituaries about us. Yeah, because obituaries are always beautiful because people feel guilty. They're not going to say, I used to fight so much with that person. They were so uncooperative. The, the obituaries never say that. You know? Oh, this person was so generous and so loving and so caring. But while that person was alive, it's like, you Selfish, beep, 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 beep. Why don't you care about anybody else? Look and look beyond your own nose. You know, but when they're dead, oh, they're so wonderful. Yeah, have you ever noticed that? <laughs> yeah? So that's what they're going to do for us, too. Yeah, they're going to write these glowing, flowing obituaries. Yeah, maybe in the Newport Minor. <laughs> 
or, or may, maybe, you know, in Mandala Magazine or Lion's Roar on, online or Buddha Dharma Magazine, you know, they'll have an obituary about us. Huh? And then all these people are going to be dedicating, you know, they're, they're going to be reading out names at the end of their evening meditation session when all they want to do is go to sleep. And our names is going to be one of the names that they read, read out. Yeah, I wish good rebirth for so and so and so and so and so. Oh, so and so and so and so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they all have good rebirth. Yeah. yeah. Someday our that's they're gonna read out our names, yeah. Yeah. And then their delusions that we'll get a, a, a what is it? A deluge of condolence cards, you know. We are so sad at your loss of the glorious virtuous nun, so and so. You know, and you're thinking, I used to put that person on the dish rota and they never showed up. (laughs) 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 So, uh, yeah, so, okay. Uh, then the second one is no permanent entity transmigrates to the next life. So there's no permanent entity that we are now with, you know, the personality. Because we feel, you know, I am this kind of person. Don't you feel it? I am this kind of person. I have these traits. I, I, you know, this is my identity. That's why I, I asked in the meditation be the opposite sex. Yeah? Be the different socioeconomic class. Did that challenge you? Did that feel a little bit weird when all of a sudden you did that? When you really thought about, okay, what it would be like to be born as a man, or you thought what it would be like to be born as a woman, and the way society gives you space or confines you in your gender role? Did you think about that? Yeah? And being in a different socioeconomic class, did you think about the difference in opportunities you would have and how that would affect uh, your traits and what kind of traits you had, what kind of political views you had? I mean, what... What would happen if you were born? I better not say it, we're (laughs) filming. (laughs) But you get what I mean. A child in a certain place, and you had a whole different philosophy of life all around you. And that's all you heard. And then you adopted it. Would that still be you? Do you think about that, that that's you? Yeah. So, yeah. We could, I mean, we could easily be somebody who had totally opposite political views than we have right now if we were brought up in a different environment. Yeah. 
maybe you're a gun toting. <laughs> I won't say anymore. Um, okay, but just think about it how much we're conditioned. So there's no permanent entity that transmigrates from one life to the next. Yeah. So there's nothing to be proud of in this life. Yeah, there's nothing to get arrogant and conceited about because none of it is permanent. Hmm? We can habituate ourselves with something, you know, and that will make it easier for certain traits to arrive and arise in future lives. Yeah, but there's nothing fixed and sure until we get to high levels of the path. You know, that, and even those things are not permanent. They're just relying on causes, but there's a whole lot of causal energy behind them. Okay, third one. Transmigration to another life occurs independence on this life. So what we do in this life and what habits we develop and what habits we counteract and how much we purify, and how much we engage in creating merit, all that has a very strong effect on what and where and who we're reborn as in our future lives. Yeah, So we're creating the cause now for what we will become. Okay, and the next one. We are not born in this life because we wished for it. Okay, when you're an Arya Bodhisattva, then you can choose your rebirth. But for the rest of us, it isn't like, you know, we died and then we were sitting up on some clouds somewhere and we looked down and we said, oh, that looks like a nice family. But first, I want them to apply to be my parents because I can't just trust appearances. Okay, so applications for being my parents, the application period is now open. Everybody who, want, who wants to have the great fortune of having me as a child, please apply. And then I will wish and choose to be born as the child of the best ones. Hmm? That's not going to happen. But it's a nice daydream, isn't it? Yeah. Lots of times when people first hear about rebirth, that's the image they get, that we're going to choose who we're going to be reborn as. Do you remember choosing? Who you were born at. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then the next one. We are not born in this life because of having prayed to an external creator. Woo! Some people are not going to like that one. Yeah? Because praying to an external creator is not going to determine our rebirth. Yeah. If anything, it's reinforcing wrong views. But, as His Holiness says, 
the idea of uh, of a permanent creator can be very good for some people because it encourages them to live a virtuous life. And whenever they live, you know, creating merit and being kind and abstaining from harming, then they create merit. And so, you know, even though it's based on a wrong view, it's still good for the people in, in the sense of creating very you know, keeping good ethical conduct and developing kindness and compassion for others, okay? But it's not because we pre- prayed to some kind of external God that that, that uh, is going to, you know, determine what we get reborn as. Okay. Now somebody might say, but wait a minute, don't we pray Tommy Taba to be reborn in his pure land, or don't we pray to Akshobhya to be reborn in the eastern pure land, Amitabha in the western pure land? Maybe you want Manjushri's pure land or the Patala Kuan Yin's pure land. So many pure lands, which one are you, do you want to go to? Yeah. Yeah, so is it because you prayed, you know, Amitabha, please, I'm applying for citizenship, yeah, in your your pure land, please open the border, don't make me stay here. Yeah, I know I'm, I don't have the same skin color as you do, Amitabha. I'm not ruby red. I'm not golden. But please let me in to be a citizen of Sukhavati. That's not what's going to determine our rebirth. Okay? So what we do, okay, is when we talk about, um, you know, the causes for precious human life or for rebirth in, in the Pure Land, it depends a lot, first of all, on ethical conduct. Yeah, having good ethical conduct, especially by keeping precepts. And second, by uh, practicing generosity and fortitude, joyous effort, concentration, wisdom, all the the... Uh, paramitas, the perfections, yeah, and then third, uh, dedicating the merit for that kind of rebirth. Okay, so you dedicate to be reborn in Amitabha's pure land, but we're not praying to Amitabha. You know, I mean, in, it it says in in one of some of the prayers, you know, at the time of death, may Amitabha and his entourage appear before me and take take me to the pure land. I think that that's fairly symbolic, you know. I don't think that, uh, you know, Amitabha is going to come up country lane. <laughs> yeah, with the eight bodhisattvas behind him and say, you know, I've come to take somebody. It's possible that when you're dying, if you've done a lot of meditation practice about Amitabha, it seems to me very possible that you could have a vision of Amitabha at the time of death. Okay, and that could inspire the faith in you that 
again, you know, dedicates the merit for that kind of rebirth. Or it could be also, you know, a, a purely symbolic thing when it says Amitabha is, you know, may Amitabha come for us. You know, maybe it's another way of saying at death time, may I want to go to Amitabha's pure land instead of grasping at this life. Okay, so we're not born in this life because of having prayed to an external creator. We are not born due to wishing to be born wherever we like. Okay. So the place where you were born, is that where you would pick to be reborn? Yeah, where were you born? In Pennsylvania? Trenton, New Jersey. Trenton, New Jersey. Okay, is that the, the place you would pick to be reborn? Yeah, I remember as a child. See, when I was a little person, we would go see my grandfather in Trenton, and we would go across to bridge, and on the bridge it had lighted letters on it that said, Trenton makes, the world takes. That's what, what is claimed to fame. This little the, Trenton makes, makes the, the world, world takes. takes. This is the state capital of the, of the state of New Jersey. This is the city, Trenton. And it was just a little... But that's, that's my memory, is that's going to my grandpa's house after being, you know, then moving to Levittown and stuff. But that was its claim to fame. And it had absolutely no, no status whatsoever, but that's what it was pushing for. And it made all these ticks that we that bite us. <laughs> I don't know. You don't, said it makes the world ticks. World ticks. <laughs> no, Trenton makes the world takes takes purchases. They, they, uh, Campbell's um, Van Camp's uh, baked beans were made in Trenton, New Jersey. Baked beans. Okay. Okay, so they made things like that. So it, it's part of the manufacturing. It makes the world take, take purchase. Take. World takes what they make. Oh. They're producing it makes what the world takes. <laughs> That's the fill in the blank, right? At that time of, of my life, it was Van Camp's baked beans. So. <laughs> <laughs> Van Camp. Hmm. You don't know Burma shaped sign, do you? Bro, who? What? <laughs> I'm a California girl. <laughs> I wasn't born in New Jersey. Well, I was born in Chicago, but you know, I wasn't born in Trenton, and I wasn't born in the South. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, Lama once even said to me, you know, you go and be California girl. I said, no, I don't want to be. But anyway, okay. Um, we are not reborn due to wishing that causes and conditions don't affect our rebirth. Okay, so I created so much negative karma, and I hope that... None of those causes affect my rebirth. I hope that that causes and conditions don't produce results and that all the negative causes I created will become non-existent. Yeah. 
that, when you've created a lot of negativity, the idea of nihilism at the time of death can sound good. I just go out like a light goes out. No, don't have to experience the result of my causes, the causes I've created. But we are not born, reborn due to wishing that causes and conditions don't affect our rebirth. It is not the case that nothing remains after death when the physical and mental aggregates disintegrate. Okay? So sometimes we may think, yeah, nothing remains after the physical and mental aggregates disintegrate. And sometimes we think, I remain after the mental and physical aggregates disintegrate. Yeah. But think of it, because we usually think that our body disintegrates. Do you ever think that your mental aggregates are disintegrating at the time of death, too? Right now, we have the human mental aggregates. Yeah, if we're going to be born as a deva, or if we're going to be born as uh, uh, an animal, you know, the hu- or even we're going to be reborn as another human being, our human mental aggregates also disintegrate. Yeah, they aren't the, they aren't the same aggregates we have in the next life. Even if you're, you know, Joanne this life and John next life, yeah, the aggregates, including the mental aggregates, are different. Mm-hmm. Does that make you feel weird? Because usually we think, okay, I'm not my body, but I am my mind. Somehow my mental aggregates, yeah? They're just going to pick up and go kerplunk in this other body. Next, there is no kingdom of death in which people reside forever after death without taking rebirth. (coughs) So this is, um, here Buddhism is quite different from many theistic religions where, uh, you know, that a certain afterlife, but that afterlife is permanent. You know, it does, it was, or I should say that afterlife is eternal and it doesn't end. Yeah. So you're born in heaven forever. You're born in hell forever. In Christianity, if you're born in hell, is there ever any chance to go to heaven? Or there's absolutely no chance at all. That's it. Whoa. There's no way to purify in hell. There's no way to... That's heavy duty, isn't it? What? Eternal damnation. damnation. And this is a compassionate God? (laughs) (laughs) But he created the whole thing. Yeah, he created the whole thing. Okay, so, but with Buddhism, we talk about rebirth, but none of the rebirths last forever. Yeah, all all of them are transient. They only last as long as the causal karmic energy lasts, or unless there is an, uh, uh, a karma, a very strong karma that, a ri- a ri- uh, ripens in the middle of the life. 
causing what they call an untimely death. Okay, so there's no kingdom of death in which people reside forever after death without taking rebirth. That's a scary idea. What does it do? What is it? <laughs> yeah, especially if you're a little kid, being told that as a child, that is scary. Okay. The consciousness of the next life is connected to the consciousness of the present life in that it is a continuation of that mind. Okay, so this is a continuation of who we are, you know, of the present mind. The present mental aggregates disintegrate, but there's still a continuation of consciousness. Yeah, but a different person arises in the next life. One person dies, a different person is born. Yeah, you're Harriet when you die, and you're, you know, Thornton when you get reborn. Okay, different people. But they're both part of the same continuum. I have a question about that. I thought that the aggregates, like the mental aggregates, um, dissolved at the time of death like they do when we go to sleep at night, and that there's a potential for, say, feeling and discrimination and or there's there's potential for eye consciousness, even though eye consciousness is not active. Yeah. So there may be potentials, mm -hmm. but potentials are not the actual thing. And at the time of the clear light of death, yeah, I, I all of that has absorbed. You know, I don't think there's a. a, a Wouldn't it be a potential like a karmic seed? Yeah, I mean, there can be, like, karmic seeds, there can be latencies and things like that. But those aren't consciousnesses. Um, and the clear light of death, wouldn't it also have the five omnipresent mental factors? I don't think so. I think, you know, because all that's gone. I mean, our, that, that, I think that's just part of the very gross mind. Huh? Yeah, because yeah, the 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 miscellaneous aggregate. Form. The second one is feeling. The third one is discrimination. Yeah, all that's gone. Yeah. You're gonna think this is funny, but when I was younger, I used to wonder why I was born in my family, and then when I met Buddhism, I. And I had the thought, well, I probably was attracted to bossa nova music because <laughs> that was really popular around 53. <laughs> I'm sure my parents were listening to it. <laughs> so my question is, is when they describe in Buddhism, like what happens for an ordinary being? What I think they say something about females are attracted. I don't know that story about their, their yeah. future father or whatever. But what is the what is the thought for an ordinary being? Why what's happening in the mind? Because there's isn't there some level of awareness? Yeah, I think there's just a lot of karmic appearances to the mind. 
Yeah, I mean, we're having karmic appearances right now. But, you know, especially in the bardo, just all sorts of karmic appearances. And the mind doesn't think think of them as karmic experience, uh, appearances. It thinks of them as, as reality. So it's repulsed by some things and attracted by other things. And so they say the, the bardo being can go anywhere except into the mother uh, if it's going to be a, a, a rebirth from you know, like a human, it can't go into the the womb unless it's the karma of the mother, you know, the mother that they have the karma to be reborn in. But otherwise, you know, the bardo beings, they say, have these clairvoyant powers and they see all these different things and they have karmic appearances. And it's it sounds like a fairly chaotic time. I mean, because if you think about it, you know, you've been separated from your body. You're separated from your whole ego identity that was based on the environment and people around you. So you don't even know who you are anymore. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's going on. And then there's these appearances and the mind is attracted and repulsed and attracted and repulsed. And you think, you know, being born as a baby too, I mean, how confusing it must be to be a, even, I mean, a human baby. Yeah. You have no idea when you're born, you know, you're in your mother's womb. You have, there's no I, conceptual idea of what is happening to you and what to expect in the future. Yeah, even you're born when you come out, you know, you don't know what to expect because you don't know who you are. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's around you. You don't know if it's safe or not safe. You know, because all that conceptual knowledge that gets built up through a lifetime is not there at that time. Yeah, so I think it must be really confusing. So to be able to, you know, say, okay, I don't know where I am and what's going on, but I'm just going to be calm and trust others and have a kind heart. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah? I mean, just think, think about it. Like, you know, if you were kidnapped. I read a story today about a woman who was kidnapped by Boko Haram. You know, they, she was drugged, and when she woke up, you know, she was in a totally different village, kidnapped by Boko Haram. Now, imagine that. Yeah, you're there. You don't know anybody. You don't know who these people are. You don't know where they are. You don't know what's going on. You talk the same language. But when we're born, we didn't even talk the same language as our parents. You don't know what in the world, you don't know what in the world happened to you. You know, Last time she knew she was eating and drinking dinner, and then all of a sudden she wakes up in this village with all these strange people who were, you know, e telling her she either has to marry one of their fighters or tie a suicide uh, bombs around her waist and go into the town and blow some people up. Yeah? Now imagine, and there you're a full-blown adult with conceptual ability 
imagine how that is, how confusing that is. And then imagine, you know, you're born in your mother's womb, but you don't have any of that conceptual ability. I'm just guessing because I've heard that um, children face death more easily than adults do. Mm-hmm. And I wondered about that. And I mm. thought, it's just a guess, but I thought it may be because they haven't yet developed such concrete ideas about who they are and how things should be and how life should be and all these kind of things. Yeah. So I think it, it's somehow easier for them to just accept that, okay, now life is ending and I'm going. Yeah. Whereas the more conceptualizations you have about how things should be and where you should be and what mm-hmm. you should be and all that, it's it's more frightening. Yeah. That so that's would, why I think maybe yeah. it's the same with coming into this world. You don't have mm. any conception, so you're kind of open to anything. Yeah. But also if you're a little kid and you're, you know, you, you've bonded with your parents and then you have to separate from them, you're pretty terrified as a kid. Yeah, kids get lost in the supermarket and separated from their parents. They're screaming. I didn't actually read the book, but there's a book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who did a lot of work with children who Mm. were dying, and that was what she said. Her experience was, maybe it's not true for every child. Yeah. I think in a general way. I don't know. The children that I've been around, um, that have died, um, they accept when they know they're dying, they know it and they accept it very well. And oftentimes they are telling their parents that they're dying, uh-huh. that they're dying. Huh. And it's the parents that have such difficulty, okay. but they seem to be mm, quite accepting. Huh. But before when they get sick and they go in the hospital and they don't know, they yeah. don't feel good and they're in then pain they're and they're separated and from their yeah. parents. Yeah, and then they're normal reactions, you know, of, you know, yeah. But but when, and I think that's actually true for adults too, if they, I don't know how to say that, if they're, if they're connected and open to their experience, mm-hmm. people know when they're dying. Mm. You know it, mm-hmm. you know. Some people don't let it in, I guess, and pe- fight against it, and turn out and get angry, but it, mm-hmm. everybody knows when they're dying. Yeah. But people can respond to that in very different ways. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that about kids. Because I always think of, you know, kids being in the hospital and feeling so scared because they're away from their parents and away from what they've, you know, bonded with. And uh, plus, they don't feel good. So maybe the, uh, the caveat to this is that kids that have a chronic illness and they're ill for some time, uh, I'll put it in that frame. You know, okay. the ones that I were around were kids that had cancer and many different, mm. you know, uh, remission and come back in. And, and so they had the time to mm. work with it, accept it, I think. Mm. And then they knew, you know, it's done soon. They knew that. Mm. So in that, those kind. Yeah. yeah. Not something quick. Yeah. This question was referring back to the meditation at the beginning. 
Mm-hmm. And I have a vague memory, maybe that we discussed this sometime years ago, but I forgot <laughs> exactly how the discussion went. But in general, when we're contemplating others' experiences, I'm wondering why is it so difficult to have a sense of the feelings, the pain, mm. the suffering they have? Because it seems like that's a real obstacle to generating genuine compassion and mm. um, you know really uh, exchanging oneself for others. So what's yeah, why is that? So like I was if you're like thinking of yourself as a bug getting stepped on and sitting there in the last few moments of life, you know, kicking and you know that. But like to really like get a sense of what that experience is like, mm-hmm. the feeling of it is, it just you can conceptually say that's painful, but mm-hmm. to actually kind of sense it. Is, yeah, it yeah, it's it's difficult, I think, to get the physical sensation. It might be easier to get the emotional reaction, uh, you know, of imagining somebody else's experience and imagining their emotional reaction. I know for me it's, it's easier to imagine that than to imagine the, what the physical sensation is. I don't know, but what, what about other people? Um Sometimes when I do envision the suffering of others, it becomes so overwhelming. I feel that there's this uh, protection mechanism that kicks in in my mind that shuts down that yeah. emotion. And um, that's also something I find is a barrier to rebirth. Like my mind won't let me go there because mm-hmm. it's just too terrifying. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure. I think it's just gentleness and over time and little by little opening your heart. Mm-hmm. And then you can bear it because, I mean, imagining a hell realm, that's not something the average human mind can really yeah. bear, I think. Yeah. I I think there's, you know, several factors in there. You know, like you said, there. I mean, there's definitely resistance in her mind because it's too scary. Um, but there's also the the vision of this life is so strong and the idea of I'm me, the me of this life is so strong that it's hard to imagine, you know, being a different person or even being us in a different situation. Now, even imagine, I mean, imagine being 90 years old and feeling like a 90-year-old person feels. Uh, that's hard. That's hard because it's not our present experience, and it is scary to think about it because you know we're not going to have the abilities that we have now. So, and there's a, a lot I think that has to do with grasping at at ourselves, and uh, and you know, attachment to not even wanting to think about pain. And, of course, our old mechanism of that happens to other people, not me. Yeah. Other people are going to be 90 years old. Not me. The only way to escape being 90 is to die first. Aside from that, there's no other way to avoid it, you know. But we can't really imagine doing either of those. 
I was thinking about the discussion we had about latencies, like dreams being latencies on the mind. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of, in the, in the first two months particularly, a lot of my life in New Zealand was just like flashing, flashing, flashing through my mm-hmm. mind during retreat, um, quite persistently with kind of not really knowing why. And so I was just thinking it's just latencies on the mind. And so all memories are just latencies on the mind. Mm-hmm. Are all memories just latencies on the mind? And like similar to as in dreams. And so then thinking about um, purification, how that relates to like what is arising or it's like we're not trying to eradicate our memories. We need our memories, but then Mm -hmm. our relationship to them. And I don't know. Yeah, there's lots of different kinds of latencies and yeah, many different kinds of latencies. There are some latencies that are karmic seeds And there's other latencies that are not karmic seeds, okay? There's latencies that are um, uh, cognitive obscurations, and then there's uh, latencies that, you know, have to do with our karmic vision. There's all different sorts of latencies, you know? Is a memory a latency? I don't think the memory is a latency, but I think the latency has something to do with our having a memory. I, I don't think the, the latency is just a potential on the mind stream. Is a memory a potential on the mind stream? No. But, you know, when we have an experience, it leaves some kind of potential on the mind stream. And I think that could, you know, this is my... Uh, guess about how it works that I think that has some thing about here was the situation and here's how I remember it because what else is going to tie the experience together with the conscious consciousness that's remembering something there has to be something that ties them together yeah and it's not that the experience keeps happening in some other universe (laughs) Until you remember it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just uh, to share one bit that you're, what you're saying is also in line with uh, Yongzin Pucho uh, Pachampa from the author of the famous Tudra text. So mm-hmm. in there also it says in the section on the, uh, I guess it's during cause and effect or is it during Rurik? I forget, but that the for all conceptual consciousnesses, their observed object condition or the focal condition mm-hmm. is an imprint on the um, uh, the what's it called the immediate preceding condition, the Dematakin, the immediate preceding condition. Mm-hmm. The imprint on that is the observed object object condition for all conceptual consciousnesses. Okay. I don't think I don't think the latency would be the observed object condition. I think the latency would produce. Well, the observed object yeah. condition does produce. I mean, it's one of the three causes of the consciousness. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's getting into philosophy, right. but, but yeah. I'm just saying that that's makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't want to have a philosophical debate right now. <laughs> All these people want to go to sleep. <laughs> no, we paid others to do that for us. Okay. <laughs>
<laughs> Did you get a bargain? <laughs> okay.